Well, if you have your Bibles down here in the, in the basement, I invite you to, to turn in them to Psalm 52 this afternoon, as we'll have a brief meditation on that psalm. We might see Psalm 52 as a wisdom psalm, many do, a psalm which, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job, calls upon the reader to contemplate something profound. In this case, the reader is encouraged to consider the difference between the wicked man who follows his sinful nature and the righteous man, on the other hand, who trusts the Lord and is kept by him. The caption tells us of the circumstances in David's life which prompted him to write the psalm. The caption says, To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And so let's break that down. To the choir master. So that tells us that David was thinking of public worship uh, when he wrote this. Now, of course, he wrote it remembering a particular historical circumstance, but it's so it, it's about David and about his circumstance and his uh, recognition of the wisdom here of of distinguishing between the wicked man and the the righteous. Uh, But it may have been prompted by a particular circumstance, but its usefulness to God's people is ongoing. David knew it could be used generation after generation for God's worship. It's called a maskil here. That's a term that's debated a bit. Uh, Many many of your your Bibles might just have a footnote that says... uh, a liturgical term or a musical term or something like that. Uh, But it probably comes from the word meaning contemplation. Uh, So it's something uh, which the reader, the singer, the listener uh, should carefully contemplate. Of course, of David tells us it's by David. The human author is, is the divinely inspired King David. But it is divinely inspired. And then it gives us a bit of a bit more information than a lot of psalms do in their caption. It says, When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, that's a reference to events that are recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, and then chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. Uh, David fled from King Saul. You may know the familiar account. Uh, he was fleeing from King Saul, who was seeking to kill him out of his jealousy knowing that David had surpassed him in popularity in the the minds of the people of Israel. Uh, People were saying that Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands of the enemies of Israel. And, of course, uh, partly that's just how you do Hebrew poetry, right? But but Saul Saul was jealous that David was attributed greater success over the enemy than he himself. And this, among other things... Uh, prompted Saul to seek to kill David. Well, on this occasion, when Saul was seeking to kill him, David fled, and he went first to the high priest Ahimelech, who was at the tabernacle, which at that point was kept at the town called Nob. Ahimelech uh, was thinking that David was on a mission from Saul. He had no reason to think otherwise, not that I think he would have turned him over to Saul, necessarily, uh, but he thought that David was on a mission from Saul, so Saul really didn't have any reason to begrudge this. 
uh, he should have just seen Ahimelech as having been fooled in this case. But Ahimelech uh, helped David and even gave him the sword of Goliath, which after David had slain Goliath was kept with the tabernacle. But David was observed by Saul's chief herdsman, a man named Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg told Saul where David had been and that the priests at Nob had helped him. Saul's response was not to go and question the priests at Nob and find out, well, they, as far as they knew, David was doing Saul's will and they were just trying to help out. He just slaughtered the priests in the town of Nob. And only Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, who became the next high priest, escaped. It's likely that Doeg was greatly rewarded by Saul for being a tattletale, so to speak, in this case. And he boasted in his betrayal of the Lord's priests. So David begins the psalm asking, Why do you boast of evil, mighty man? As we break down the psalm, we see that verses 1 through 3 are observations about the wicked. Verses 4 and 5 tell the fate of the unrepentant wicked man. Verses 6 and 7 give the response of the righteous to observing the fate of the wicked. And then verses 8 and 9 speak of the fate of the righteous as opposed to what happens to the wicked. So verses 1 through 3, as I said, contain observations about the wicked. David says they, they might boast in their evil deeds, but they ignore the fact that God's steadfast love for his servants does not end, no matter what the wicked might do to them. And so he asks, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. You know, there's nothing that the wicked can do to you as a servant of Christ in this world that they can really boast in. The worst they're doing is sending you on to Christ faster. Think of the covenanter that Marquis of Argyle who was put to death for his faithfulness to the covenants after having crowned King Charles II himself then was put to death at King Charles's order for his adherence to the covenants and he said the king, I place the crown upon the king's head and he hastens me to a crown greater than his own. Well, that's the worst they can do. Even the afflictions that the wicked afflict upon you as Christ's people, God is going to use for your good in the end. So David says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty men? The steadfast love of God endures all day. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God, and he includes death and the sword in those things that cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The wicked man's tongue plots destruction. He's deceitful. He loves evil more than good. So David says of him, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Oh, isn't that easy to observe in the world? And then he says, Selah. There, there's a Selah in the, the text of the psalm there. That's that is a liturgical marking or a musical marking that encourages us to pause and to contemplate. This is what the unrepentant, unredeemed man is like. This is all of us, but for the grace of God, that 
We might plot destruction with our tongues in our sins. We work deceit and we end up loving evil more than good. But that's to our shame and thanks to the grace of God His people are redeemed from such a nature. Well, as Paul, or as, excuse me, as David moves on, he says in verses 4 and 5, he begins to tell us of the fate of the unrepentant. So he talks about the nature here, or the characteristics of the unrepentant wicked man. Here he says, what, what's their fate if they don't repent? They love to do what Doeg did, bring destruction upon others with their words, but God will destroy them in the end. And so he says in verses 4 and 5, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Think of Doeg telling on the priests for helping David and bringing about their destruction. Right, His deceitful tongue loved those works that devoured, as it were, that ate up those priests. He says in verse 5, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And then there's another Selah there. So think about that. You'll, you'll be broken down forever if you don't repent of your sins. You'll be snatched and torn from your tent from your dwelling place. And here uprooted, not just from a particular place on earth, but from the land of the living itself, from, from where those who go on living will be. To be uprooted from the land of the living is more than mere bodily death. There is no root, no hope of life in God's presence in the world to come. There is only the second death of the lake of fire awaiting those who do not repent. And there again, as I said, there is another sila there that calls us to contemplate this fact carefully and solemnly. It is a fearful thing to think of what is coming, the coming destruction of the wicked. Well, verses 6 and 7 then report the response of the righteous who observes the fate of the wicked. Verses 6 and 7. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So the first thing the righteous one does when he sees the fate of the wicked is fear. He recognizes the fearfulness of the situation. There but for the grace of God, I would be. And he has an awe and a respect for the judgment of God. And a, a wondrous sense of the fact that if it weren't for God's grace, that would be my fate too. Well, the second thing he does then is laugh. Not rejoicing in the misery of others, but he is laughing at the absurdity of those who thought they could outrun God's righteous judgment. Laughing like, like the Lord laughs at the kings of the earth who think they can overthrow the Lord's power on earth. Sort of like when a little kid is trying, a toddler is trying to beat up a grown man, right? They might just chuckle at that. And also, the righteous man laughs for joy 
at the glory that judging sin gives to the Lord. He sees the silliness of trusting in earthly things, especially in deeds that would bring about the wicked's own destruction. <laughs> you, you put, he says, you sought refuge in your own destruction. How foolish is that? And so we can sort of laugh at that, at that foolishness. Now, by, by contrast, verses 8 and 9 then show us the fate of the righteous to be planted firmly in God's dwelling place, not uprooted from it, and to flourish there. So, rather than being uprooted from the land of the living, he's, by God's grace, planted firmly. Verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. And notice that this comes by faith and not by works. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Trust in the steadfast love of God. Trust in God's promises, which is to say, trust in the fulfiller of God's promises in Jesus Christ. And you'll be like a green olive tree. You'll not be uprooted from the land of the living. You'll be planted firmly in the land of the living. And so, David says here that he will live forever praising God. So it's not that I'll be planted firmly like an olive tree in the house of God until that olive tree grows old and withers and dies and needs to be uprooted and burned in a fire and another one's placed. No. Forever. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And he will be forever praising God, as he'll say in the last verse here. Therefore he can live patiently now through all the trials of life, through all the betrayals of, of wicked men like Doeg the Edomite. And so, of course, can you. He and you, if you trust in Christ, will dwell in God's presence with the rest of all the godly forever and ever. And that's the last verse. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good. So there's the patience in the present time, in the presence of the godly. So let's sing that psalm as we have opportunity to sing praise to God. Now let's turn to Psalm 52, Selection A, and stand together as we conclude this afternoon's brief service. We'll sing 52A.